if you would stand with me as we read God's Word. I have you guys stand because it's respectful. <laughs> I like you. Just, why don't you preach for me? You can just come up here if you want. <laughs> it's, to me, it's, it's a sign of respect to God and um, just a sign of reverence for what God has delivered to us, His holy and inspired Word. And you know, as you are able, if you can stand, um, if, you, if you can't, then, um, you know, it's more of a posture of your heart. And so what I, what I ask you guys, um, you know, I thank you guys for standing with me as we read God's Word. We're going to be reading today in Mark 15, 40 through 47. Mark 15, 40 through 47. And I apologize, there is no slides today. I had my wife review the slides and proofread them, and then I forgot to upload them. So, you're just gonna, you just got me today, so I apologize for that. So either uh, open up your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, um, you know, do whatever you can uh, to, uh, to see God's Word, and we're going to read now. Here's the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> they were, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned that the, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It's the word of our Lord. And God, we come to you now and we just we thank you that you have delivered us your word for us to read, to learn from, to ponder, meditate on, to encourage and exhort each other, God, because your word is beneficial in all circumstances. It is profitable, as you say, for reproof, correction, teaching, and training in righteousness. And God, as we come to you now to hear what you have to say to us, I pray that any words that I say would not be my own, but they would be yours. That you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would deliver your message to your people. We pray against any distractions that could come against us now. We pray for your angels to watch over us your Holy Spirit, to open up our hearts and open up our minds and our ears to what you have to say to us, that we may know you better, that we may love you more, and we may walk more closely with you. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So we are now going to finish up chapter 15. This is the second to last chapter in the book of Mark. Um, we're going to soon be 
coming into the Easter season. Next week, um, we're going to be talking about worship and during our celebration Sunday. So we're going to have a little sermon in on what, what it means to worship and what that looks like. And then we're going to continue on in chapter 16 and, uh, and have a sermon on, on what, it mean, what Lent means, kind of maybe a topical thing going on. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection and what that means for us. So that's what you have to look forward in the next couple of weeks. But now we are in the interim period. We're in the period of time between the death of Jesus, which we talked about last week, and his resurrection. So this is, I'm excited about what God has today. I was, um, I was really challenged this week as I was preparing this sermon because honestly, I didn't know what to say. What to, what to deliver, what God had for me until about two days ago. And then God started to show me, I believe, what he wanted to say today. So I'm excited because this is nothing that I could have prepared or put together. It was something I believe that's completely from God. So, um, so we're going to start today looking a few verses into the passage to kind of set the stage. And then we're going to go back, talk about it from the beginning uh, all the way through uh, addressing some of the people that were there, some of the themes that are going on. So um, if you've got your Bibles, please have it ready and available. Um, I gave some note pages. I tried to print larger this week. Um, so hopefully it was a little bit better than last week's was. And please take notes because we're going to be going through a lot of Scripture. And that way you can take those notes back home and review what we've talked about. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is the time of day. When did this happen? It says that it evening had come. It was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. So this is pretty important for us, especially when we're talking about a story placed in the Jewish context, right? Because the day of preparation, as established from the very beginning when God established the Sabbath day, he said, on that day you should prepare everything that you're going to need to be able to sustain yourself during the Sabbath. Because he wanted people to keep the Sabbath holy, to keep it reserved, to focus on God during that time, and not do work as we would during the normal day. And even as we see the, the Israelites wandering around the wilderness, when he would provide them sustainment, when he provide nourishment, he said, on the day of preparation, on that Friday, what you need to do is gather everything you're going to gather, and then on Saturday, I'm not going to provide anything for you. And they tested him in that. Some people tried to gather some food, and then they said, you know what, I'm just going to gather enough for today, and then tomorrow there'll be some, and everything that was out there was rotten and not good for eating, not good for consumption. Only those that had done exactly what God said had sustenance on that day. So God takes his Sabbath seriously. And so it makes sense that as the Israelites grow up, as they're taught these lessons from the past, that they would keep it serious. So Jesus died on the day of preparation. The day of preparation. So think about this. He died on the day of preparation. So why does Mark belabor this point? He says it three different ways to make a point here. You see... Jesus needed to be buried, and he needed to be buried soon. If he was not buried on Friday, he wouldn't have been buried until Sunday, a whole two days afterward, right? He, wouldn't have been, he would have been stuck on the cross those two days because they wouldn't have 
gotten him down on that Sunday or on that Saturday, their Sabbath. They wouldn't have done it. Part of their culture. They wouldn't have been allowed to do that because they would have broken the law. So that's important. So think about that though. Two days of hanging on a cross. Two days of decomposition. Two days of rigor mortis. Two days of flies coming in and attacking the body. Two days of vultures probably coming down and eating away at the flesh that was opened up and exposed to the air. There's a reason why that's in there. There's a reason why. See, burial two days later would not have been a pleasant experience. It wouldn't have been a fun thing. And on top of that, it had implications to how they would have viewed Jesus as buried if he would have waited that time. Dr. Robert Deffenbaugh of Bible.org, he's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, mentions this. He said that under Roman law, those convicted of sedition or planning an insurrection, so sedition, I had to look that up to make sure that I knew what it meant. Um, it said, conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against authority. Conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against authority. So those that were convicted of sedition, typically under Roman law, would not be allowed to be brought down from the cross. They would have been kept on the cross. And what was Jesus convicted of? What was the plaque above his head? King of the Jews. It was a sign to say that this man is claiming to be king when there is only one king, and that is Caesar. That's what they would say frequently amongst each other, right? So Jesus was, in essence, being convicted of sedition, even though we know, as we talked about last week, that Pilate really didn't believe that, really didn't feel that. He was just kind of appeasing the Jews by saying, you know what, I'm going to convict him of what you kind of alluded to that he was guilty of, even though I don't really believe it, just to try to appease you so that you don't, you don't really rebel against me because he was afraid of his um, people uh, trying to boost or kick him out of power. <clears throat> so, they were left on the cross with the purpose of creating indignity toward them and, creating, and shaming them. To basically say that these people, if, if you create or incite rebellion against the Roman government, this is what will happen to you. It was a sign to the people. So the fact that this was a common practice and the fact that what we read about, that Pilate let him come down from the cross, that he was, his body was granted to Joseph of Arimathea, tells us that Pilate, Pilate really didn't believe that Jesus was trying to incite an insurrection against him. He didn't really believe that. So that's important just to build a picture of what's going on and the fact that we know that that's not what Jesus was doing. That's not, we know that reading back into it from our perspective, getting to see the whole Bible, we know that, but they didn't know that at the time. So according to Jewish law, though, so we, we heard about what Roman law would say. What would Jewish law say? So Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 gives us some insight into that. Deuteronomy says, and if a man is committed of a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death. Well, thank you for that. Um, and you will hang him on a tree. Wow, okay. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. 
You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you see, the Jews had some, some stake in this. They had some uh, feelings about Jesus being hung overnight. They said, no, this can't happen because then he is accursed. This man that we thought or we still believe is the Messiah, he would be accursed under the law, and that couldn't happen. In fact, God ordained that it would not happen. So he set it up in such a way that Joseph of Arimathea, when he would go to Pilate, he would find favor with him and that every, the circumstances would work out so that Jesus could be removed from the cross and be buried that day. So see, God worked that all out from the beginning for that to happen. The Jews, especially Mary, Jesus' mother, had a vested interest in getting Jesus off that cross because what it would mean to them and their culture. It would disgrace her. It would disgrace their family. It would disgrace Jesus as well. So they wanted him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea wanted him down but as a disciple of Christ. We'll get into that in a little bit. So that's all important. Here's the stage that we're in. It's the day before the Sabbath. Now, we don't hear much about what happened on that Sabbath. There's not much in the Bible, if, if any, in the Bible at all. It goes from that day of preparation right to the Sunday, the morning after the Sabbath. So that's the stage we have right now. It's the day before the Sabbath. It is the day of preparation, and Jesus is dead on the cross, confirmed by the centurion, and that's what we're going into. So what I want to talk about now is these two men that are mentioned in the Gospels, the one that we see here, and then the other one that is mentioned in some of the other Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. I want to talk about them a little bit to kind of build a picture of who these men are, because if you don't understand who they are, it will be very difficult for you to understand the, the story that's going on, this narrative of the, the burial of Jesus. So it was previously discussed, but it's worth restating again, that not all of the Pharisees were antagonistic of Jesus. In fact, we see two right here in this story, not necessarily in Mark alone, but in this story, these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So who was Joseph? Well, Luke 23 tells us he was a member of the council. That chapter also tells us he had, consent, he had not consented to the decision and the action of that council, the condemnation of Jesus. Mark 15 reminds us that he was well-respected and that he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Mark, or Matthew 27 says he was a rich man. All four Gospels say that he was a disciple of Jesus. All four Gospels state that he was a disciple of Jesus. John 19 tells us he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews. <clears throat> and that, all, that chapter also tells us that he came to Jesus by night to talk with him. What about Nicodemus? Who is this Nicodemus guy? See, he's only mentioned in John's gospel. I find that kind of interesting. Of all the gospels that are out there, the four gospels we have given to us, John is the only one that mentions who Nicodemus is and, and what he does. In fact, he's mentioned three times, and there's a lot given to his story, so we can really see a lot about who this guy is. So he's mentioned as being taught by Jesus in chapter 3, 
So you guys, I'm sure, recall this discussion that they had. Jesus, the passage talks about um, being born again, and, and John or and Nicodemus comes to him and says, what does it mean to be born again? What are, you, what are you saying here? And Jesus gives them a really kind of strong rebuke. In fact, he kind of slams them a little bit if you really read into it. He said, when he's asked Nicodemus, when talking about that, Nicodemus replies, how can it be? How can a man enter into his mother's womb again? Now, if you just think about that for a second, that's kind of a crass statement, isn't it? It's kind of a kind of an edgy statement to talk about someone entering back into the mother's womb. That's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of a, when you read this into the Bible and think about it in current context, that's probably not something you talk around the water cooler at work about, right? It's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty edgy. And what is, in, in fact, he's talking to a respected teacher and he's saying this as a teacher of the law as well himself. And so that's kind of a, it's, He's trying to poke at Jesus a little bit to say, you're teaching this stuff that doesn't make any sense at all. Why should we believe you? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Wow. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're supposed to be the educated one. You're supposed to be the one entrusted to teach all of Israel this, the law, the prophets, what they mean about the Messiah to come. You're supposed to teach all of the people of Israel this, and you don't know what I'm talking about? Really? Jesus continues on more to explain that piece, but that's the first instance we see of Nicodemus. Now, you would think there were other Pharisees that Jesus talked to that he corrected them much less harshly than this that we never hear about again, Right? Never hear about him again. But this man we hear about again. Just a couple chapters later, John 7. We see Nicodemus amongst the other Pharisees and the, the council. And they are plotting Jesus' death. They are plotting how they're going to kill Jesus. And what does he do? He stands up for Jesus in this instance. And he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? He stands up for him. He says, aren't we supposed to uphold the law here? Isn't this the right thing to do to try to give Jesus a fair trial? How do they respond? They say to him, are you a Galilean too? So we start to see that Nicodemus' heart is changing. His heart is starting to be softened by the Holy Spirit if it hasn't been completely already. And he starts to stick up for Jesus because he, he starts to believe and have faith in who Jesus is and what he is saying. His heart is changing. His comments are rebuked by the Pharisees and he's essentially dismissed. So he then kind of probably steps back a little bit and goes into kind of a secret following of Jesus, much like um, Joseph of Arimathea did. The final place we see uh, him is in John 19, where he talks about the fact that he helped Joseph of Arimathea bring Jesus down from the cross and prepare him for burial. <clears throat> so it's explicit in the words of Mark in the actions of Joseph that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah to come. The same thing could be said about Nicodemus. 
it's clear that their heart had been changed by the Holy Spirit and that they had come to a faith in the promised Messiah and that Jesus was that man. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done what they did. On top of that, we talked about the time frame, the fact that it was evening on the day of preparation and they needed to get Jesus down quickly. So this would have spurred them to action. And it says in Mark's Gospel that Joseph act with courage to go and ask for Jesus' body. The, the, time, the short time frame that they had and the fact that he was a disciple of Jesus spurred him on to action and he went to, uh, to ask for Jesus' body. To bring him down. <clears throat> Pilate was surprised by this because as I was researching this, Typically, a crucifixion, and you've probably heard this before, a crucifixion would last a long time. Sometimes multiple days of people being up on the cross. This wasn't something that typically lasted a few hours. But to me, what that points to is that Jesus had a specific purpose and a reason why he was there. And when it was finished, when he said it was done, he, re- he relinquished it all. And he said, I'm done. I don't need to be here anymore. My work here is done and I can, I can die knowing that I've accomplished what the Lord's will is. So it happened very quickly, but in order to do his due diligence, because Pilate was in charge and he was trying to make sure that all this was put behind him, what he did is he asked the centurion, the guy who was a professional executioner. He said, is this guy dead? He said, yes, he was. It's important building a picture as to uh, what I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But when Pilate receives that word, then he says, okay, you can have his body. You can take him down from the cross and and go bury him. And the reason why he let that happen is because, like I said before, he really didn't believe he was guilty of sedition. He didn't believe that he deserved to stay on the cross as a symbol of what not to do in the Roman Empire. So Joseph and Nicodemus then take his body, get it down from the cross, prepare it quickly, and then they bury it in the tomb that Joseph had prepared that he had, it says, hewn out of the rock wall. Now that would be probably an extensive process, right? They didn't have uh, tools like we have now. He probably would have had to have his servants, it says he was a rich man, so probably his servants working on that for months and months trying to hew out an area where he could be buried someday. And this guy that wasn't Jesus' family offers up his tomb that he was going to be buried in someday to this man that he just followed as a disciple. It's kind of interesting, right? Probably, didn't, probably wasn't a cheap endeavor, you know, making your own tomb. Most people would probably just dug a shallow hole and then rocks piled on top of them probably not a headstone like we have today. Just something where people could go and say, yes, that's where my family member was buried. A little plot of land that maybe they, they bought. And then on top of that, they take a, a big stone and roll it in front of the tomb. That was probably also to protect it from animals coming in and, and eating at the body. So not so much from people coming to rob the bodies, but that is probably also a possibility but probably more than likely animals, because as you can imagine, a body decomposing probably attracts some animals in there, right? So there's a few things I want to point out about this passage. 
look how many eyewitnesses there are to the death of Jesus. Because even today, there are people that believe that Jesus didn't die. That he was just in a coma, in some type of trance state. And when he was put in the tomb, that he woke up and just walked out. Right? But look how many people were there as eyewitnesses. In this passage alone, we see multiple women. We see in another gospel, it talks about John being there. John, one of the 12 disciples of Christ. We hear about Jesus' mother being there, and she would be there watching and seeing what was happening. They had no reason not to report the truth about what was going on. And top of that, you had Joseph and Nicodemus were probably there or close and were able to see that. And in fact, they pulled him down from the cross so they would have seen what his body was like, right? They would have known that he was dead. What about the professional executioners, right? There were Roman centurions and their job in life was to kill people. They were professionals at it. They knew when a person was dead. They'd probably seen hundreds and hundreds of people dead before that died at their hands. So they would know when Jesus was dead. And in fact, it says that they stabbed him, and one of the Gospels says, stabbed him into his heart and outflowed water and blood. Right? So that idea that I told you I wasn't going to talk about last week, I'll talk just briefly about it. What happens during the crucifixion was that you would get a, what you would classify if you were uh, a doctor, would say a heart murmur or something like that, where there would be fluid building up around your lungs because of all the blood loss. Now the blood is leaving your body, so there was fluid that was trying to fill that cavity to protect the inner organs, and that would be in there. So as he was stabbed, that fluid around his heart and around his lungs, which was then also, in fact, hurting him because it was removing some of the space that he could use for his lungs to expand to breathe, would then flow out, as well as heart from the blood, or blood from the heart that would flow out. And it would be separated, right? It would be two different distinct fluids. So when that happened, they knew that this guy's dead. His heart's not beating anymore. It's not trying to protect itself anymore. He's, he's dead, all right? They didn't need to break his legs like they did other people. They knew that this guy was dead. And why did they know that? Because they are used to seeing it over and over and over again. They were professionals. That was their job. <clears throat> so I don't know what's going to be presented in the next few weeks about the resurrection, but Mark makes it very clear that the testimony that he has is validated by multiple people. There are multiple witnesses. Now we know, and I've said it before, I think that Mark was not uh, a specific eyewitness to many of these things that were happening. He got a lot of what he wrote in his gospel from, uh, from some of the other disciples and also from James, uh, excuse me, and Peter. He, so he got a lot of this word secondhand, but he made sure that he got his facts straight. All right? He knew what he was talking about. So there were numerous eyewitnesses. So that's the first point I wanted to make there. The second one is that look at the manner in which Jesus was buried. Okay? Look at the manner at which they buried Jesus. What do we see in the gospel? Ligonier Ministries has a devotion on this specific topic, and I love how they state this. It says, Joseph, a rich man, buried Jesus in a grave he had constructed. 
This was the beginning of the Lord's exaltation. So he died a death among criminals, a disgraceful death of the cross. But in his burial, we begin to see his exaltation. It starts at this point. How was he buried? He was wrapped in a newly purchased linen cloth by two men who weren't his family, right? Not, not his family. Why would they do that? Why would they go out and purchase something? I mean, I, I don't know about you. You've probably had someone that has passed away in your family, and does someone random off the street come and, and buy the, the casket, buy the plot of land, right? Maybe, maybe in some austere cases, but more than likely it's the family that comes together and, and does that, right? I can think of a friend of mine who uh, passed away a few months ago, and um, their family didn't have a lot of money, so there was a lot of people that came in and tried to help fund them, but the family still had a big portion of that that they put together, raised the money, or, or got the money together to bury uh, the one that passed away. But these two guys, they weren't part of his family. In fact, they probably knew him for less than two years. That's, that's saying something, right? Jesus made an impact on their lives. Not only that, the Holy Spirit made an impact on their hearts. And that's why they were doing this. The next thing that's interesting is that he was wrapped in 75 pounds of myrrh. 75 pounds of myrrh. Now, if you don't know what myrrh is, if you ask my wife or ask Teresa, they can talk to you about essential oils and all that stuff that is extracted. But what myrrh is, it's a, uh, a gum, it's a sap that they get from a tree. And they basically cut the side of the tree and the sap comes out, much like they do with the same process for getting maple syrup and things like that. But this sap kind of hardens on the side of the tree and they collect it. And then what they do now is they, uh, they use evaporation and they get the oils out of that and then they sell it for medicinal purposes, right? So this myrrh is not something that's easy to come by. It's, it's pretty, pretty rare, um, not as rare as some things, but it's pretty rare, and it cost a lot of money to get, all right? So when I was doing the research on this, I found it kind of interesting. The cost of 75 pounds of myrrh, depending on where you get it and, and what price you're looking at on the internet, I found that it could cost anywhere between $1,200 and $5,300, for 75 pounds of myrrh. That's $1,200 to $5,300. And remember, I'm saying these guys are not his family. They are just disciples. Now, would you be willing to go drop five grand on someone's burial that was just a, maybe even a close friend? That would that'd make me think twice. It'd have to be a really, really close friend, right? I mean... So that says something. For a family member, yes, I would say we'd probably do that, but Mary probably didn't have that type of money. But these guys did, and they were willing to give that up. <clears throat> this all adds and builds the case for the dignity of his burial, this exaltation that I mentioned earlier that is happening now in his burial, the exaltation of the Christ. On top of that, it fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9 says, 
that he was to be buried in a rich man's tomb. So we see that. Isaiah spoke of it hundreds of years before this happened, and now Jesus is being buried in a rich man's tomb. Not something that Mary asked him, right? This is something that he did of his own accord. This is something that he had to do courageously, because now if he is stepping out and he's one of the Jewish leaders and he's saying, you know what, I'm following this Christ guy. I'm putting my, my chips in, his, in, in play for him. And I'm going to go and I'm going to pull him down from the cross and I'm going to bury him. All the other Pharisees that were on the opposite side would have said, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you associating yourself with this Jesus? He was against everything we believe. Joseph and Nicodemus said, no. We believe he's the Christ and we're going to follow him even in his death. Now, some of your translations, depending on which translation you have, this is a little side note, some of your translations may say 100 pounds of myrrh. So I was reading this and I was kind of tipped my interest, so I decided to figure out why does it say 100 pounds in some translations versus 75 in another. And the reason being is a key word, the word litra, or litra, which is a Greek word, which is translated directly to mean pound, all right? Litra directly means pound. Now, the problem is, is that it doesn't equate directly to an English pound, all right? A litra is 11.5 ounces, 11.5 U.S. ounces, all right? And we all know, well, maybe some of us know, that a pound is 16 ounces, right? So 11.5 versus 16 ounces. Well, when you multiply that out, that's the difference between 100 pounds, 100 U.S. pounds, and 75. Well, it's 71.5 and they, 71.8, and they round it up, right? So is that really important? No, I don't think it's important because what is the reason behind Mark saying this? Why do the Gospels include the fact that they... They put so much into this. It's because it's building the case for the exaltation of the Christ. It's showing that, yes, he died among criminals, but he was exalted in his burial. He was the king in his burial. And he will continue to be the king in his, re in his resurrection. So if I had to derive a key point for you guys from this, then it would be, <clears throat> that though he was condemned to death like a common criminal, Jesus enjoyed a magnificent burial of which no lawbreaker could be worthy. If Jesus was truly a lawbreaker, he was not worthy of this kind of burial. But Jesus wasn't a lawbreaker. He, the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived, bore, the, bore that curse in our place but had no sin of his own. I'll say that again real quick in case you're taking notes there. And I apologize, I don't have slides so you can see exactly what uh, the boxes are supposed to say or the lines are supposed to say. It says, though he was condemned to death like a common criminal, Jesus enjoyed a magnificent burial of which no lawbreaker could be worthy. Jesus was no lawbreaker. He, the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived, bore that curse in our place, but had no sin of his own. So who else was there? Who else was there in this story? Well, 
There's women there, right? So let's go through some of the women that were there. Mary Magdalene, who is this lady? See, Mary Magdalene, Luke 8, 2 says, seven demons were cast out of her by Jesus. Mark 15, 40 reminds us that she was at the cross when Jesus died. Mark 15, 47, she sees where Jesus is laid in the tomb, her and other women. We'll get there in a second. Mark 16 and John 20 talk about her going to the tomb on that Sunday after and finding the tomb empty, finding the, t- the stone rolled away. And then later on, the resurrected Jesus appears to her. Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 28, 1 and 2. Mark 16, excuse me, 9 and 10. Luke 24, 10 and John 20, 18 all talk about this. Jesus appearing to this woman after he was resurrected. Who else was there? It says Mary, James the son, or excuse me, Mary the mother of James the younger or James the little, depending on your translation, and Joseph. Joseph. She too was at the cross and she was mentioned multiple times with Mary throughout this episode, throughout the the following uh, time period. Salome was also there. This lady is believed to be Mary, this... uh, excuse me, not Mary, she's believed to be the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so men that were disciples of Jesus. Jesus' mother is there in John's account. John, one of the 12, I mentioned that earlier, he's mentioned in John 19, 25 through 27 as being there. And in fact, Jesus spoke to him on the cross and said, behold your mother. And we believe that at that point, John took Jesus' mother and took, him, took her into his household and cared for her after that. And this was a fairly common practice amongst them that as a person died, if they didn't have any really close relatives or they had some people they really cared about and loved uh, that were close to them, they would have their mother go and stay with them. And then it would be their responsibility because much like in some of the cultures that we still have in the U.S. today, grandparents when they stopped being able to take care of themselves, would go live with their younger family members and it would be their responsibility to take care of them. So Jesus was giving that responsibility to John. And then we also see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We talked about them. So why is it important that John mentions these women here and these others that are there? You see, the love these women have for Jesus is contrasted to the scorn of the Jews, of the Pharisees, of the scribes, of the criminals on the cross. It's contrasted, showing the opposite side. You have these women who are there at the base of the cross. You have John who's there at the base of the cross who's showing Jesus this absolute love and care and they are are just weakened by their sorrow. And then you have these men who are scorning Jesus, who are ridiculing him on the cross. You see, Jesus throughout his life had a a non-traditional way of viewing women in that culture. He saw that women were an important part of the work that he was going to do in his kingdom, which was contrary to the typical way that the Jewish people viewed women. 
God, through His Spirit, inspired the Gospel writers to include these women as not only the recipients of His grace, but as the recipients of His call on their lives. You see, Jesus conversed in His life with tax collectors, sinners, lepers, Samaritan and demon-possessed people, men and women, all people who the Pharisees and Sadducees would not be seen with. They wouldn't have been seen with. The people who were in charge of that church, who were in trust or in charge of the Jewish religion, the people who were entrusted with the oracles of God from the Old Testament, who were in charge of teaching the lessons and continuing that generation, wouldn't have been seen with the people that our Lord would associate with on a regular basis. John Calvin mentions this uh, in one of his commentaries and notes that Mark mentions the women as a reproof to his male disciples. Those whom he called, he would commission as apostles, were less faithful than those who would not receive the apostolic office. There were certain men that he called that said, you are my apostles, you are the ones that are going to go out and be the basis for starting this this." church, this revolution that I'm starting, and they were, they were not there. They left, but these women were there. They were with him the whole time. They were there, and they sat at his feet in the cross, and they were there to go and see him be buried, and then go back later on to try to prepare him even more for burial. They were showing true faith and true devotion to Jesus. The key point here that I find is that Women have a place as disciples of Christ. Jesus, this is not, this is kind of lost, I think, in our culture a little bit because we're a little bit more accepting or a lot more accepting than they were back then. But in Jesus' day and time, this was countercultural. This was revolutionary. And we see that this continues throughout the Bible as we go through Acts and as we go through the epistles where we see that women had prominent churches, growing churches, and they were housing people and they were using their gifts and their talents to further God's kingdom. That's an amazing thing that Jesus started. Even in his death, we see that. So who was not there? Kind of already tipped my hand to this, but who was not there? The Twelve, well, eleven close disciples that were there to him. John was there, but the other eleven disciples were not there. That's important. It's really important. We've got we've to look at that. See, Judas was dead. Matthew 27, 5 mentions that. Peter, who had cut off a servant's ear in the garden... Malchus's ear in John 18.10. He didn't, goes on to deny Jesus three times and then he's gone and he, and he flees and we don't see him again until later on. And the others, no one knows. After the garden, it's just not spoken of until Jesus is resurrected. We don't see them again here. Mark 14.50 just says that they fled. They were gone. Where did they go? Don't really know. Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us that they were not there at his death. After three years of living with Jesus, all the investment in their lives that Jesus had, 
the miracles, the teaching, the prayers, the laughing, the crying, they all leave Jesus. Now eventually they do come back, right? We know that. We understand that because we have the big picture. But to deny Jesus before others and to desert one's profession, the job that Jesus had called them into when things got tough, that's a, it's a pretty serious sin. And it's something that we should strive to avoid. They betrayed our Lord Jesus in his darkest hour. So why do I mention this? <clears throat> What's the purpose? See, while the sin that the 11 disciples committed was a serious act, it was forgivable. There's forgiveness in there. There's still grace there. Therefore, their future actions would demonstrate the repentance they had in their heart. Romans 8, 28 30 through 30 reminds us, and it says, and we know that in him, excuse me, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who loved him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. If someone is truly saved by God's grace through faith, then they are truly saved forever. And though someone may be saved by grace, may be backslidden or may walk away from the faith as we call it sometimes, if they are truly saved by grace, it's not going to be forever. They will come back to Christ. Why will they come back to Christ? Because God is faithful. And God never fails the purposes that he starts. Anything that God does, he sees through to completion perfectly. 100%. If you're truly a Christian, the key point here, your salvation is assured. If you're truly a believer, nothing can take you away from God. Absolutely nothing. Now, the only way to define what it means to be a Christian is the way the Bible defines that, because many people throw around, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm, I believe in God. What does the Bible say it means? Because that's the only way you can define what it really means to be a Christian. The Bible says to us that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his holy scripture that he's given to us alone, and it's all for the glory of God alone. That's the only way to define what it means to be a Christian. It's not because you go to church, and not, it's not because you prayed a prayer once in your life, it's not because you're a good person. These are all works. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Philippians 1, 6 reminds us, 
He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. See, God is a jealous God. And he does not let go of that which is his. He is a jealous God, and if you are his, he is fiercely going to fight to keep you and hold on to you. And he will bring you back to, to himself. Lee, if you'd come up. So in closing, how do we respond to this today? What do you do with all this information? You could easily walk out the door today and say, you know what, that's, that was really cool. I kind of understand that passage of Scripture a little bit more, and you know, I've got that. And if that's all that you get from today, then I think you're really missing the reason why God has you here today. You really are. See, the cross is why we're here today. The cross of Christ is why we're here today. Today, you and I are confronted with the cross that led to Jesus' death and burial. Without this cross, this message that I preach today would not exist. There wouldn't be a message. Before you and I today is one simple question, the answer to which is profound implications on our life. How do I live in light of the cross of Christ? How do I live in light of the cross of Christ? You see, you can't truly understand the meaning of the cross of Christ and remain unchanged. If you know what the cross means, you cannot remain the same. And it's not just something for new believers. It's something for us to look at regularly and remind ourselves of. Because even today, if I know what the cross of Christ means, I cannot remain the same that I am today. I have to change. If I walk away today without being convinced that something in me needs to change, Christian or not, then your heart is hard. If I walk away today and I don't see something that needs to change in my life, then my heart is hard. It's only because when faced with the cross of Christ, with our eyes, minds, and hearts wide open by the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to walk away unchanged. It's not because of the words I said, the way I presented it. It's only by the Holy Spirit working in your heart. It's impossible for me to walk away unchanged because of the one who died and now lives for me and for you. If you would stand please with me. The key to today's message is that there is a response for every single one of us here. If you are a believer, you know your faith is certain 
And your eternity is certain because God is a jealous God and he does not let go. But that doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that there's not something you need to repent and believe in, something you need to change and start a new course in your life. That's for everyone here, every single person. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Ask God right now to show you what you need to change. Ask God, what do you want me to do? What do I need to change? What area of my life do I need to cut out, root away, get rid of in order to follow you more closely? What lie have I been believing about you that you want to change in my mind into the truth so that I can know you more correctly, more rightly. What things, what sins have I been holding on to because they're comfortable, because honestly I like them more than following what you're telling me to do? What are those things I need to get rid of right now and give over to you? I can't tell you what those are. Only God can. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. Maybe you're here today and this message sounded great, but it left you feeling empty and scared about what the implications of all this means. And the implications, if you don't know Christ, should be scary. It's like we talked about last week. All sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. And unless you are covered by the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross that we talked about today, then you are still guilty of that sin. If you don't know Christ today, if you have not surrendered your life over to him, Please come talk to me. Come talk to Eve. Talk to someone after this service. Don't leave here today without talking to someone. Because if you're feeling nervous or anxious or scared about that, then that's God's Holy Spirit telling you, come to me. Relinquish that burden that you have and come to me. God promises to give us rest when we do that. That rest takes the form of the peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that we can't understand, that we can't know unless we know Christ and what his death and resurrection mean for us. Lord God, as we are here today, we recognize we are sinful creatures. We recognize that we need you We don't need you as one who died and that's it. We need you in the full story of what you've revealed to us, which is not only that you died, but you live and you continue to live and you intercede for us 
and your grace is sufficient to save us. God, you are sufficient to save us. God, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would place such a burning desire on their heart to find you, to seek you out, that they would come and talk to someone about that, whether it's me or someone else. Help them not to leave here today without that. And for all of us that are believers, that have surrendered our lives to you, God, it doesn't end there. It continues on knowing that we need to constantly, as your word says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Find those areas that are sinful and need to be rooted out and turn to you. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for not just dying and leaving this world, but dying and resurrecting and living for us. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.